Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Lawrence J. Brown about his book, Transformational Processes in Clinical Psychoanalysis, Dreaming, Emotions, and the Present Moment, published by Rutledge in 2019. Lawrence Brown trained in adult and child psychoanalysis, and is a faculty member and supervising child analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. He is also a supervising and personal analyst at the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Brown has lectured internationally and published papers on a variety of topics, including the Oedipal situation, beyond intersubjectivity, field theory, and autistic phenomena. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm curious about because I don't know the 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 scene in Boston, but the let's see, the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute and the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis are those two institutes in the same city? Yes, they are. Okay, just like in Los Angeles, we have three or four institutes depending on how you count them. But so they're just two, and and how is it your is one of them your home institute or where you were trained, and one of them is where you do other kind of kind of work? Well, my home institute is the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute, where I did my uh, training in um, child and adult psychoanalysis, uh-huh. and where I spent most of my time. Um, the Massachusetts Institute of Psychoanalysis uh, is an independent institute. It is not affiliated with any national or international association. Uh, for example, okay. BIPSI, well, Boston Psychoanalytic, is um, affiliated with the American Psychoanalytic and also, uh, by dint of that, with the 
International Psychoanalytic Association. Um, okay. But as I said, the uh, other one, MIP, uh, Massachusetts Institute, is unaffiliated. Okay. That's like here in Los Angeles. We have a, an institute, the Institute of Contemporary, I think it's called Inst of Contemporary Psychoanalysis. I think that's where Stolaro is one of the famous names from that institute. And I think it's independent. It's not affiliated with the American or the international. That's why I said we have three or four here, depending on how you count them. But um, so, okay. And so let's jump into this book. Um, and why don't you tell me, why did you write this book? Well, um, I have a, a book I wrote previously um, on intersubjectivity and published in 2011. And that book focused on the um, uh, intersubjective processes and the unconscious. Uh, and uh, I wrote it from the framework of an integrated view uh, combining aspects of Freud, Klein, and beyond together. Uh, so that emphasized uh, intersubjective processes about how in the analytic situation, the two minds of analyst and patient communicate unconsciously, create new meaning, um, and, uh, and so forth. Now, this this book, current one, uh, focuses on transformational processes, building on uh, what I had written previously about uh, intersubjective processes. So in this book, I take a look at how is it that uh, the analyst and patient uh, interacting together create new meaning uh, and it's heavily influenced by Beyond, but also by Freud. Period. Oh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, I, I was surprised, in a way, um, to real to discover how much uh, Beyond's writings are. Uh, directly influenced by Freud's. I mean, it's obvious to say that because just about every analytic uh, school worthy of anything begins with Freud's papers and uh, books. Uh, but in this situation, I, I noticed that uh, Bion picks up on a lot of Freud's ideas that Freud left um, undeveloped. And he elaborates these ideas as well as expands on them in significant ways. Um, so one way of thinking about it is that uh, Bion is taking Freud's initial uh, notions about psychoanalysis and quote-unquote, dreaming them, uh, to use a, a Bionian perspective, that is, elaborating them further and giving additional meaning to them. Yeah, so um, 
I guess that might be a controversy in the field to the degree to which beyond there's a continuity with with um, Freud and and the degree to which there's kind of a paradigm shift um, and there's a discontinuity. Uh, is that a controversy? Am I right about that? Or where and and where do you sort of see yourself in that controversy? Well, I, I'm not sure that's a, well. <laughs> let me back up. Uh, I wrote a paper that was published in the Psychoanalytic Quarterly in uh, 2009 called "The Ego Psychology of Wilfred Bion." I first submitted that paper to the International Journal of Psychoanalysis for their consideration. And it was rejected. The reason it was rejected was that the reviewers there believed that I was reducing Bion to yet just another um, uh, elaboration of Freud, as though he was a footnote to Freud. Um, which was not my point at all. Um, and going back to my book on intersubjective processes, I write from uh, a point of view where I integrate different theories and try to speak plainly about what each of them are about and how they relate and build on each other. And uh, that first book was very... Uh, sold well, and I think of owing partly to the fact that I took that that orientation. So uh, I felt that the uh, uh, IJP, International Journal of Psychoanalysis, um, uh, didn't give it sufficient credence. So um, I submitted it to the uh, Psychoanalytic Quarterly, uh, which found it very interesting and relevant um, and published it in, in their journal. So I, I personally, sorry, uh, I personally uh, don't see that as a conflict. I think all psychoanalysis is uh, a, a, a continued building of hypotheses and elaborations, uh, starting with Freud but not limited by that. So, all right. Well, maybe maybe I'll ask that in a slightly different way in the future, because sometimes it seems to me like there's, when we get into this well, post-Bionian field theory, we're kind of in a very different world psychoanalytically, it seems to me, um, but, but let me back up and, and stick with inner subjectivity a moment, your previous book, which I imagine your books are very lucid and clear and um, helpful to read educationally for people who are learning, I think, about new ideas. A few years ago, I interviewed, I think it was a Lawrence, another Lawrence, Kirshner. Uh, he wrote a book on intersubjectivity, and he's from Boston too, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, is um, it, it isn't. His first name is is Lewis Kirshner. Oh, correct. Yes, yeah. And I'm his book. He's very much a philosopher too. It seems like, and maybe his book maybe have been more philosophical than yours, but um, and maybe yours st stuck more with the Freud. 
Klein be on trajectory of psychoanalysis. And I think Lewis Kirshner's book on inner subjectivity maybe got into more some of the European philosophical traditions that mm-hmm. influenced it. But okay, so inner subjectivity, then your first book, second book, emphasizing transformation. So why don't you say what is what are transformations? Um, I guess something that happens intersubjectivity, subject subjectively. Well, uh, I mean, transformation is such a generally used word, and uh, it it means nothing unless you apply it to a particular area of study. For example, in physics, they talk about transformations, uh, but of a different nature. So the question is, what is it that is being transformed? Uh, And following beyond, I believe that what is being transformed is an emotional experience shared by the patient and analyst, and that that emotional experience uh, emerges from the unconscious interaction between their minds. So as a result of that, we could say collision or collaboration of the two unconscious minds, an emotional experience arises out of that interaction. But given that it's an emotion, it's more of the order of a kind of somato-psychic experience rather than uh, one that has meaning in in terms of uh, having been registered in language that can be used for communication with other people. So what is it that's being transformed is that emotional experience that arises as a result of the interaction between the unconscious intersubjective interaction between patient and analyst. Now, here's where I would bring us back to Freud, for example, because Freud makes a tantalizing statement, I think it was in uh, 1912, that the analyst should use his unconscious as an instrument of the analysis. And he doesn't say another word about that. So I I think many analysts over the years, and uh, in particular regarding myself, uh, I I take that comment by Freud uh, very seriously, and that uh, uh, it needs to be elaborated further. So when I talk about um, uh, transformational processes, I'm talking about how unconscious experiences get evoked in each of us that need to be transformed into a way that they can be thought about and communicated, both consciously and unconsciously. Okay, so this word transformations, I, it, it, it's not exactly, it didn't used to be anyway, a psychoanalytic concept, if such a thing can be um, identified, 
But if we went back into some dictionaries of psychoanalysis, I don't know if we'd find the word transformation. So maybe this is an example of how I'm saying, are there some new concepts that are emerging in a new paradigm of psychoanalysis, like the word transformation? I don't think, and in, in Freud, would we find the word transformations or is it in only implicit, mostly implicit in, for instance, what you just quoted um, from yeah. Freud? May I read a couple of sentences from the introduction of my book? Okay. It's, it, it's regarding that issue of transformations. Uh, and I say that um, there are many definitions of the word transformation, and it is widely used, it is, it is a widely used noun with unique meanings depending on the context. Various fields of study, such as linguistics, biology, etc., have highly specific usages. The general definition listed in the Oxford English Dictionary is, quote, a marked change in a form, nature, or appearance, end quote. And more specifically, quote, a metamorphosis during the life cycle of an animal, uh, end quote. The meaning in physics is given as, quote, the induced or spontaneous change of one element into another by a nuclear process, close quote. Though there is no official definition of transformation psychoanalysis, it seems to me that these three definitions come closest to what an analyst means when he uses this word. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, okay. Um, I like that word metamorphosis because I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how something in the session happens. There's a, 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 I think in the quote you read it, metamorphosis in the organism, but I guess in psychoanalysis, it would be the metamorphosis in the field between the analyst and the, the client. Something happens in the sessions of an emotional nature that is a, um, is is something being transformed into something new e emotions and to some degree ideas and language that can be shared between the two parties um so so maybe transformations is going to become because it, it seems to me like there's a lot of momentum in the world right now moving towards uh field theory um in psychoanalysis and it 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 may be that this word becomes more and more in the parlance of of our profession. Um, yeah, let, let me say it um, in, in a somewhat use a different metaphor. Okay, uh, uh, the in terms of the transformations that you're questioning about in our field. Um, Freud's original ideas, and I think many analysts still practice this way, was that the analyst would listen to the patient's associations and ferret out from those associations some hidden meaning and then use that hidden meaning as the basis for uh, an interpretation to the patient. And the goal of that is to help um, uncover um, repressed uh, memories from the past, 
um, and bring help them to become alive uh, in the here and now of the session. Now, Bion talks about the fact that Freud's view of making the unconscious conscious has been very important in the history of psychoanalysis. But he seems to be saying also that we need to add another model, and that's the model of transformations. The goal is not to make the unconscious conscious, but rather to move uh, into the area of what is unknown. Because the Freudian point of view is that we are, there is something that is already in place, like discovering uh, a treasure box that's been hidden under the sand. Uh, and what we do is unearth it. But that assumes that the thing that is discovered is already formed. For example, like a memory that suddenly comes to mind from childhood uh, during an analysis. But Beyond says that even, the, even though that's been very helpful in the history, he also, and I don't think he says to replace that, but to expand on that model uh, uh, with his emphasis uh, not on the finite, but on the infinite. That's pretty much quote unquote. Not on the finite, that is what we can know immediately, but on the infinite. That is, so that reorients us away from kind of digging up stuff from the past uh, that is already formulated to what occurs in the analytic um, situation and in each of our minds as well, that is unformulated, unknown, um, uh, leaning toward the infinite, uh, but not yet um, um, transformed into a meaningful way. I'm not sure is that clear or not. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i i i see that i think you're talking about what we might call a the classical understanding of what psychoanalysis was doing in a more contemporary understanding and it seems to me that in your book you're very conservative and and always kind of maintaining the continuity and um as opposed to some authors 
even one very famous one, maybe I won't mention, but who kind of said, who's very widely read nowadays, that we don't really need to be reading Freud as, you know, candidates who are learning about psychoanalysis as much, very much um, because things are so different. So let me ask you, like in your, when you're sitting with a client, um, how much you just described two different ways of listening to the material. Are you doing both? I'm guessing you're going to say, but, or do you find yourself mostly in this second realm of um, where you and the client are, in a way, creating something new together than digging up something buried from the past? Um, I use what tools are available to me and that fit the particular relationship between me and the patient. Uh, so there are some patients um, who come in and uh, it becomes clear after a while that there's something there kind of scratching at the back of their minds, causing them difficulty that um, uh, can be remembered or unearthed, discovered, um, and it's fully formed already. Um, but increasingly, psychoanalytic, uh, co contemporary psychoanalytic thinking, um, especially the post-Bionian thinkers, as you mentioned, uh, put, look more toward what is unformed that or is in a nascent stage and that the analytic process needs to help formulate that, give meaning to it. Another word that's very commonly used these days is unrepresented, that there are emotional states that are awaiting representation, uh, but are remain unrepresented or unformulated at, at a particular time. So, you know, different patients have different needs, and also, no two relationships between an analyst and patient uh, are alike. Um, and I, I would say that it's more than just uh, uh, dividing an approach in two ways, that is between the more classical uh, discovery of uh, repressed material versus uh, contemporary views that I'm promoting. Uh, around uh, focusing not so much on what is uh, unknown, uh, but uh, represented, uh, and instead on um, what is uh, yet to be represented. Uh, and there are other ways, I think I'm repeating myself here, sorry. Um, and, and there are other approaches, such as paying careful attention uh, to what happens in what we today call the field as well. That if a patient or an analyst has an experience, uh, it may uh, be reflective of neither the patient nor the analyst, but them as an analytic couple. And it arises from that unconscious, uh, inner subjective connection that they have. Okay, so maybe that brings us to talk about dreams, which we could kind of with this way, in my mind, I'm kind of going back and forth between the classical way and then more contemporary ways of working. 
clearly I'm struggling with my own ways of integrating all this, but do you, can you talk about how dreams, how do you deal with dreams in, in your book on, on transformations and thinking about new and old ways of working with dream, the idea of the dream? Well, that's a good question about the difference between Freud's and Beyond's theories of dreaming and a very important distinction to be made. Um, for Freud, as we know, uh, the dream uh, is a way to uh, allow the pressure uh, put upon the psyche uh, by an unconscious wish to be expressed in reality. However, some of those unconscious wishes are not acceptable um, to the censor, uh, which has to make sure that it is not too frightening uh, because the dreamer needs to be staying asleep. So Freud talks about the notion of dream work, and that's the process by which an unconscious wish, say, an Oedipal wish to replace one's father is turned into uh, a dream symbol that represents that unconscious wish, but is not the wish itself. So instead of dreaming directly about uh, replacing one's father uh, because that's unacceptable and will wake up the dreamer. Uh, the dream work creates the symbol. And so the dream is not about replacing one's father, but perhaps instead um, a dream about not liking a male teacher and ignoring him instead. So that is a symbolic expression of the underlying wish. And that allows the dreamer to stay awake because a disturbing wish or disturbing thought is not, um, uh, has been represented as something else. So Freud's theory of dreaming, can you hear me, Philip? Freud's theory of dreaming uh, emphasizes the pressure put on the psyche to allow partial expression of the unconscious wish. Um, and so for Freud, uh, we say that his theory of dreaming is based upon the pleasure, the pleasure principle, that is, the psyche is subjected to unpleasure um, by the pressure of the unconscious wish to be um, uh, to reach consciousness, and that's why there's this uh, um, uh, dressing up of the unconscious wish as something else. Now, 
for Bion, uh, he does not begin with the struggle in his theory of dreaming. He doesn't begin with the struggle to um, to uh, have um, uh, an unconscious wish pressuring for conscious expression. But his view is that uh, the the uh, dream is formed under the aegis of the reality principle. And but that he means that the reality um, that he's talking about is the reality of an emotional experience. And this emotional experience is initially uh, registered in the psyche as a kind of somato-psychic experience, physiological experience, if you want to call it that. And his emphasis is not on trying to get that experience um, uh, dressed up or camouflaged so it passes through the sensor, but instead his emphasis is on the dream work, uh, creating a symbol so that that um, so that uh, that uh, that emotional experience can be represented, and it needs to be represented in order for there to be unconscious communication uh, between people, um, as well as conscious communication. So, for Bion, we are dreaming all the time, by which he means that we are constantly. Um, in a, excuse me, that we are constantly uh, transforming these uh, emotional experiences into symbols that enable us to communicate. Um, and so, for example, um, when I'm with a patient, uh, a thought may just jump into my mind, unbidden, and I might be surprised. Like, why does that happen? What is this about? <clears throat> does it have meaning? And Bion calls that a reverie. And the reverie is uh, the, uh, the conscious realization that one's un unconscious processes have been working to create this reverie. For example, um, uh, one of the chapters uh, in my new book deals with <clears throat> what I call our spontaneous unconscious creations. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, spontaneous unconscious productions that appear without notice and are unbidden. Uh, and I give an example of working with uh, a male patient in analysis and how there are different kinds of these unconscious uh, productions, uh, but they do come to one's mind spontaneously. Um, in classical analysis, uh, there was a tendency to dismiss this as kind of um, uh, uh, unimportant um, noise of the system, so to speak. And from a Bionian point of view, 
not only is this important, but it is extremely relevant in the entire process of transformation. And it is an and it's an example of how the mind is quote dreaming even while we were awake, that is transforming emotional experience. So uh, for example, in the paper that uh, that I just mentioned uh, in my new book, um, I was with this patient and suddenly a particular joke came to mind, just out of the blue as he was speaking. And most of us tend to kind of, because um, we're very serious psychoanalysts, we tend to uh, to push that stuff aside as um, a distraction. But really, it's a goldmine uh, that helps us get a sense of what is going on in the analytic situation as as it's happening. That's why Bion talks about he said that the analyst must dream the analysis as it is happening. That is, as it's going on, our, our, our associations, our reveries, even our um, physical symptoms we might experience, these are all both expressions of um, the analyst's representation of the emotional mood of the session. Um, now, I know earlier on you mentioned field theory. Uh, and um, uh, this has been become popularized uh, over the last, um, oh, maybe 10 to 15 years, uh, uh, specifically uh, by some Italian analysts, uh, uh, Antonino Ferro and um, Giuseppe Civitarese. They've both written extensively about field theory. Um, so the way I view field theory is that there's an inner subjective connection, unconscious connection, uh, brought about by mutual projections and interjections between the analyst and patient that uh, gives rise to a shared emotional experience that kind of colors the um, the uh, intersubjective field. Now that needs to be transformed and given meaning. And so, from that uh, unconscious emotion that permeates the the, the field, the analyst and or patient, either individually or together, uh, will transform that emotional experience. So for example, I might have uh, a thought that comes to mind, like the joke I mentioned. And the question arises, which I think is an interesting one, and, and um, uh, Ogden has written a paper about this, titled, Whose Idea Was It? That is, when an analyst has an idea uh, that spontaneously comes to mind as he is in the midst of analyzing a patient, uh, 
What is the lineage of that idea? Is it the analyst's idea solely? Is it the patient's? Is it some combination? And Bion has uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes from him. He says, there is something interesting about the intercourse between the two of them. Between the two of them, they do give birth to an idea. I think I didn't quite get it right. Uh, but the emphasis on between the two of them, the analyst and the patient, there's a certain kind of intercourse that um, gives birth to a new idea. So when an idea arises in my mind or in the patient's mind during the course of the analysis, we can rightly ask, whose idea is that? Uh, not every idea um, uh, has its lineage in the analyst and in the patient. But there are oftentimes, particularly um, when, the, when these spontaneous reveries or spontaneous unconscious productions uh, come to mind, uh, that um, give some sense of what is happening uh, in the field. For example, the joke that came to mind had to do with uh, forestalling um, Hitler uh, uh, and trying to, two guys trying to kill him off uh, before the Holocaust. And, uh, but as, as I deconstruct that in the session and in the paper that I wrote about it, um, it turns out that it has many complex meanings to it. Uh, one of them being that the two guys in the dream who are trying to kill, I mean, in the, in the, in the reverie who are trying to kill Hitler are myself and my patient. We're the two guys and Hitler represents the, the destructive wishes and struggles each of us have with destructive feelings. So killing off Hitler has its meaning uh, for the field as we're trying to um, we're trying to kill off or repress or do away with the um, destructive feelings each of us okay, are so, having. So let me. Other. So there we have this um, joke occurs to you during a session. You're raising the question. Is the lineage from the patient or from you, or is it is it birthed of both of your um, subjectivities that that causes this spontaneous unconscious production of a joke in your mind? Um, and so then, so there we have the field. Um, I guess I'm I I really like this idea of the spontaneous unconscious production, which you have a whole chapter about. I think it's a very cogent and powerful. Um, idea for us to have in mind as we're working with patients. And I heard you give that paper in Los Angeles, and you talked about three different kinds of spontaneous unconscious productions, jokes that occur to you being one kind of spontaneous unconscious production. And it was interesting that the audience sort of all, most of the question and answer period was taken up with that <laughs> that one joke and and jokes in general 
people, there were less questions or none about the other forms of spontaneous productions. I'm just wondering what, do you have any thoughts about why that occurred? Uh, Uh, yeah, I have a few thoughts. Um, I've always been reluctant. I've given this paper a few times to audiences, and inevitably that's what happens because people are always interested in jokes. Um, and uh, and they're, they're more, quote, fun to deal with than to deal with the, with the often very difficult, brutal stuff we have to deal with in, in analysis. So I think that may be one aspect of, of why people did that. Also, the joke that I told was about the Holocaust. Um, and it wasn't a, quote, crude Holocaust joke, but it had many implications for that. And I could see where the group may want to stick with the um, the stuff that's, that's funny and enlivening and stay away from the more deadly, depressing aspects that that the joke uh, deals with. But it brings up another issue uh, in, in terms of clinical technique, and that is that um, if one has a joke that comes to mind spontaneously, and we may want to share it with the patient, which I did uh, in, in the uh, paper that I gave that you just mentioned, uh, one has to be really careful about why you want to share that. And in particular, uh, if, the, if the joke comes up uh, at a time when the analytic pair are dealing with some really painful, depressing, difficult themes, uh, we have to be careful not to use the joke as uh, a diversion away from staying with the painful material. Um, and when I, I rarely share a joke um, uh, with patients, but when I did decide to share the joke in the, in the case we're talking about, I gave it thought. Why would I want to share this with him? Um, am I trying to dodge away from some much more difficult material and kind of lighten the mood? Uh, and I didn't feel like I was doing that. I felt that impulse at other times, but I didn't feel I was doing that in this case. And it did seem that the joke was so particular and focused and dealing with a very maudlin topic uh, that it did feel to me like it had something important to say about what was going on between the patient and me. So I decided to share it with him. And the way I shared it with him is that this joke came to mind when he said such and such. I think it was, he used the term, it's a less than easy way to be that triggered this reverie of mine. That is the joke. I actually, we're winding down and I have 
a bunch more questions, which I'm not going to get a chance to ask, but I'm going to throw them out there and then you can kind of have a final response. But I was interested, I had a, somebody ask me recently, why do they call it post-Bionian field theory? What's post about it? Um, that was a question I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about your chapters on autism, what in your book, um, this book we're talking about today, there's some couple, maybe at least one or two about sort of transformational processes that happen with autistic patients. I thought that was really interesting that that was in there. Um, uh, I, I wanted to get into the fact that you're a child analyst. Um, that's kind of unusual nowadays, but I'm not going to be able to ask all those questions. So I'm just going to give you a chance to any final words you want to say about anything we've talked about. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm also a child psychoanalyst, uh, and I did my training at Boston Psychoanalytic. They have a program in child analysis there. Um, and uh, I find that um, doing child analytic work is you know, really um, challenging in many respects, uh, particularly being a little bit on the older side <laughs> uh, and trying to sit on the floor with patients, but it's a very, very effective treatment. And um, I've uh, taken uh, on some difficult patients, which I enjoy doing, um, including kids who are on the autistic spectrum, uh, but higher functioning uh, ASD kids, autistic spectrum disorder kids, who would be called Asperger's rather than uh, autistic per se. Uh, and uh, I, wrote in, I wrote in a book two chapters dealing with uh, autistic uh, boys. Uh, one was a very interesting case of a boy who was diagnosed at 20 months old with severe autism and uh, underwent... Uh, um, many, many hours of uh, applied behavioral analysis treatment and other forms of practically oriented treatment. Um, and then I saw him for the first time when he was three and a half after somebody referred him to me. And this robust boy comes into my office who is uh, making good eye contact with me, playing symbolically talking about things, uh, and I thought they sent the wrong kid in to see me. Uh, and um, I raised the question in this, paper, in this chapter, what happened to his, quote, autism, unquote? And that's the chapter and what I discuss uh, about it. As it turns out, he uh, was misdiagnosed. He had uh, terribly drug-addicted parents uh, who just ignored him and never did anything to really enliven this boy um, uh, so that he could be a real person. Uh, instead, he was just abandoned in many respects, even though living in the home with his parents. So it was a deep, deep trauma that this boy uh, experienced. 
Um, and I talk about this, the nature of that trauma and uh, uh, from the point of view of the work of Francis Tustin, a well-known child analyst, no longer alive, uh, in England, uh, who postulated this notion of psychogenic autism, that is, as opposed to biologically uh, determined autism. He talks about how the psychogenic autism arises from uh, a premature ripping away of the infant from its close skin-to-skin -skin contact with its mother in the very earliest of days of life. And this leaves the child uh, unprotected, uh, like his skin has been torn off and susceptible to all sorts of overstimulation from um, too much interaction with people, too much light, um, too much noise, etc. And so these children uh, kind of, uh, in a tropism-like way, uh, automatically erect uh, a, uh, a um, oh, what's, the, what's a good term? I'm thinking of the Iron Dome in Israel to keep out uh, um, missiles, but some kind of encasement where they can't be injured. They kind of put on a thick rubbery skin around themselves, not literally, but metaphorically. Uh, so that they can protect themselves from too much input that just uh, drives them haywire. Um, and as a result, they save themselves from just turning into a, a puddle of mush psychologically. Uh, but they end up doing this at the cost of being unreachable emotionally. So thank you for um, taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, as you can tell, I like to talk. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Lawrence J. Brown about his book, Transformational Processes in Clinical Psychoanalysis, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. And thanks for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.